It's my great pleasure today to introduce um, Professor Leslie Orr from the Department of Religion at Concordia University in um, Montreal. Um, and she'll be giving us a talk um, entitled Imagining Inscriptions, Epigraphy and the Construction of Indian History. I think that hasn't changed, right? That, that no. is the actual <laughs> title. So we are all very curious about this. Um, for people who study South India, Leslie Orr needs no introduction. I have to say that she's a very famous person so we're very proud to have her here today you know and you should in fact be on the list of famous orientalists no not oh, yeah. archaeologists <laughs> and epigraphists i'm sorry yes exactly and um and uh, you've in in the past apart from uh, the book that many people will have seen donors devotees and daughters of god which focuses on it, it's got the subtitle temple women in medieval tamil nadu and focuses on a character that's um not unknown in um, South Indian history, namely the Devadasi, but from a very different perspective of what we uh, are generally used to, namely looking at medieval um, sources, um, you've worked um, straddling various spheres of um, qu questions regarding religion, history, epigraphy in particular with Sanskrit and Tamil inscriptions. You've worked on women in medieval South India, and you've worked on giants in medieval South India, and uh, on religious processions, which is a very important paper that came out in, in the Festschrift for François Gros. Um, if you want to know more, there's time to ask Leslie after the talk. And I think without further ado, I just you know let you talk rather than me. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Very happy to have you. I'm very pleased to be here. And also, I have to say that if you read the uh, acknowledgments or the introduction to this book, you'll see that Steve Collins is the, uh, the parent, the, the godfather, the, uh, the, the, the sort of guy who got this into print, uh, basically. Um, so with his help, uh, if without his help, everything might have been completely different to this. Um, as uh, you've just heard, my research has been largely concerned with the history of religions in medieval Tamil Nadu from the ninth century onwards. Um, drawing on the evidence of the inscriptions found on temple walls and on the architecture and iconography of the temples themselves. And um, in order to give you a sense of where these inscriptions are found and, and, and what they look like, um, I, I have this book of uh, the Encyclopedia of Indian Temple Architecture with many, many beautiful photos of temples. Uh, and you can see here, um, I'll, I'll pass it around, you can see how the inscriptions are are engraved on the walls. They become almost part of the sculptural program. They're really uh, a part of the fabric of the temples themselves. So um, I'll just pass this around and where the pink post-its are, are, are uh, nice examples of, uh, of uh, epigraphy in situ uh, and especially of the, of the types of um, inscriptions that, uh, that I've particularly been concerned with. But uh, although at one time I swore I would never leave the medieval period for any reason at all, recent forays into the colonial archives have made me interested in the processes through and the manner in which Western scholarship has come to value Indian inscriptions and how these and other sources have been employed to construct histories of India, including histories of religions. I also wanted to pursue a question raised by Philip Wagner uh, in his pathbreaking study Pre-Colonial Intellectuals and the Production of Colonial Knowledge, which appeared in um, uh, 2003 in, the, uh, in Comparative Studies in uh, Society and History. Um, and the question that, uh, that, that Phil raises in this article that I wanted to, uh, to look further into is whether or not Europeans were actually the first epigraphists in India. 
As my own work on these issues has just begun, I'm very grateful uh, to have this opportunity to benefit from your responses and ideas about uh, what I'll be presenting today. It really, I've just put this together. I, I came up with the title, you know, before I knew exactly what was going to happen, so the title still kind of works, but. And uh, there is a handout, there's a few copies here, which is largely just to give you a sense of the names and dates of um, people and, and publications uh, concerned with epigraphy, because I'll, I'll be tossing off these names and I'll, when I start talking about AREs, you can look and say, oh, annual reports on South Indian epigraphy. Okay, so um, uh, I hope that this handout will be uh, a, a useful guide. Also, I'm not going to have as much time as I would like, or I don't have an, as, enough, uh, as much information as I'd like, about some of the um, Indian epigraphists who are uh, listed in the last block of names on the front uh, page, but um, you'll see I don't even have dates for many of them. So um, I hope that will be another uh, direction that my, my work might go into, but for the record, uh, we have to say that a, a large amount of the uh, work of epigraphy has been conducted by Indian scholars, especially in the 20th century. So I begin with the question, what happened to the Mackenzie inscriptions? Colonel Colin Mackenzie was active in South India in the late 18th and early 19th centuries as a soldier in the East India Company's Madras Army, engaged in campaigns against Tipu Sultan and the French, as a surveyor and engineer for the government, and as a collector who gathered and documented a massive number of manuscripts, oral traditions, sculptures, monuments, and inscriptions. This material was mostly in Tamil, Telugu, or Kannada languages, and both the scale of his collecting project and the fact that he was ignorant of these languages meant that Mackenzie relied heavily on so-called native assistance, both for collecting material and for translating it into English. Mackenzie was part of the circle of what Tom Troutman has called the Madras School of Orientalism, with uh, Francis White Ellis at its center. Ellis was the first to demonstrate that there was a group of Dravidian languages entirely distinct from the Indo-Aryan language group, and in 1812, Ellis established the College of Fort St. George to teach those languages in Madras. The Madras School of Orientalism can be regarded as the South Indian counterpart to the Calcutta Orientalist establishment with its institutions, the Asiatic Society of Bengal, begun in 1784 by Sir William Jones, and Fort Williams College, founded in 1800. After the death of Colin Mackenzie in 1821, his enormous and unwieldy collection was purchased from his widow by the Bengal government for the staggering sum of 10,000 pounds sterling. The collection, partly catalogued by Mackenzie's assistants, by H. H. Wilson of Calcutta, and by the Reverend William Taylor of Madras, ended up in several places, and today most of the English language manuscripts and papers are in the India Office Library, now in the British Library, and the Indian language materials are in the Madras Government Oriental Manuscripts Library. Among the materials presumably still in Chennai is a collection of copies and facsimiles of over 8,000 inscriptions, constituting not only the earliest such collection in India, but possibly the largest as well. The South Indian inscriptions that Mackenzie's team collected, like inscriptions throughout India engraved on stone or copper plates, were for the most part records of gifts made to temples or to Brahmins, or documents recording some other type of legal transaction or agreement. Although there were other men who made the collection of inscriptions part of the surveying activities they undertook at the beginning of the 19th century, 
notably James Todd in Rajasthan and Francis Buchanan in South India, Bengal, and Bihar. None of these men approached the scale of epigraphical collection that was undertaken by Mackenzie and his staff as part of a, an explicit agenda. But Mackenzie's amazing collection of, of inscriptions sank into obscurity. And the, in the Indological journals of the 19th century, there are only a handful of references even to the existence of the collection for a sense of what the Indological journals of the 19th century were. You can uh, see the list on the back. It was only in the 1950s, nearly 150 years after the time of Mackenzie's activities, that the Madras Government Oriental Manuscripts Library undertook the publication of the Tamil inscriptions from the Mackenzie collection in uh, the volumes of South Indian Temple Inscriptions, SITI. The several volumes of SITI, finally bringing to light some of Mackenzie's inscriptions, provided a total of 1,300 inscriptions, leaving close to 7,000 inscriptions, all of those not written in Tamil, still unpublished. So they're just sitting there. I hope they're sitting there. Who knows? Why had nothing been done with Mackenzie's valuable and extensive collection? Why so little and so late? Part of the answer rests in a series of decisions that took place in the 1830s that decided the fate of the entire Mackenzie collection. The government in Britain wondered to what end they, or the East India Company, had acquired all this material. Mackenzie's friend, Sir Alexander Johnston, informed them of the worth of the collection and urged them to continue the work that Mackenzie had begun, collecting, cataloging, and synthesizing manuscripts, local histories, and inscriptions. Sir Alexander urged that Kavali Venkada Lakshmaya, who had at the time of Mackenzie's death been the head of his team of assistants, be given the mandate and the funds to continue and complete this work. Lakshmaya was one of the Kavali brothers, so-called, who had been employed as assistants by Mackenzie and had himself put forward a proposal for the continuance of this work. Lakshmaya's proposal was turned down in a most rude and summary fashion by a person whom we might otherwise admire, James Princep of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, with the impugning of the abilities of Lakshmaya and the smug assurance given to all that the work of cataloging and synthesizing the Mackenzie manuscripts would best be left to Reverend Taylor, universally adjudged in subsequent times as an incompetent, and I believe Nick Dirks calls him a crackpot, um, and as for the epigraphical material, according to Princep, Monsieur Jacquet of Paris has intimated that the mass of the colonel's inscriptions are to be included in the corpus inscriptionum indicarum, upon which he is now busily engaged. One might be doubtful about how busily Jacquet was, in fact, engaged on the corpus inscriptionum indicarum, CII. Uh, such a project evidently seemed feasible at the time and was in keeping with similar undertakings in Europe with respect to the publication of Greek and Latin inscriptions. But in fact, the first volume of CII did not appear until 1877, and the ambition of creating a comprehensive published corpus of Indian inscriptions has, of course, never been realized. In fact, the same situation uh, prevails in the case of Greek and Latin inscriptions, interestingly enough. They had the idea they could get it all down, but no. Furthermore, Eugène Jacquet, Belgian in origin and working in France, was not on the face of it the ideal person to take in hand the Mackenzie collection of inscriptions, since he was not conversant with any South Indian languages, although he did know Chinese and Sanskrit and many other languages. And he was regarded as a brilliant scholar of Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek coins, as was his colleague in Calcutta, James Princep. 
Jacquet was co-editor of the numismatic collection of his friend Jean-Francois Allard, who in 1836 wanted him to come along on an archaeological mission to the northwest of the subcontinent, but Jacquet was already too ill to leave France and died at the age of 28 in 1838. Princep had a very high opinion of Jacquet's abilities and indeed felt that they were fellow travelers along the same scholarly path in terms of the decipherment of ancient North Indian inscriptions. It is clear that both Princep and Jacquet valued the coins and inscriptions of the northern part of the subcontinent far more than the South Indian materials, and they were not alone in this view. Indeed, there were many who continued to regard the language and literature of the South as derivative of, and much later than, Sanskrit and the Northern traditions, in spite of Ellis's proof of the autonomy and antiquity of Dravidian languages. Not allowing Lakshmaya to carry the torch and handing off the Mackenzie inscriptions to, to an ailing Jacquet, who had no care or enthusiasm for them, doomed them to oblivion. Nicholas Dirks has suggested that the entire Mackenzie collection fell through the cracks because it couldn't be useful either to official Orientalism or to a newly emerging colonial sociology. On the one hand, he says, Mackenzie's textual materials did not meet Orientalist standards for classicism and antiquity. On the other, Mackenzie's histories seemed too peculiar, too sullied by myth and fancy, and too localistic and Oriental to be of any real help in the development of administrative policy. With reference specifically to the inscriptions in the Mackenzie collection, the deprecation of their value may have been partly due to the manner in which they were collected. As Fleet said, John Faithful Fleet, uh, said of the Mackenzie inscriptions in 1878, but scholarship for their proper decipherment and translation was unfortunately wanting at the time that Mackenzie made his collection. And such versions as with the aid of pundits he did attempt were not critically accurate. Mackenzie's assistants, for the most part, made transcriptions and eye copies of the inscriptions, while by the 1870s, more so-called scientific methods of collecting inscriptions began to be employed. Although the neglect of the Mackenzie inscriptions may thus seem to be the result of a series of unfortunate mishaps and clashes among personalities, uh, aggravated by the shift of priorities and the professionalization of Orientalist scholarship, there were other reasons for the sidelining of South Indian inscriptions in the 19th century that had specifically to do with the way in which epigraphical studies developed in India. The Buddhist turn. <laughs> Dilip Chakrabarti has identified two basic theoretical traditions for archaeological studies in India. On the one hand, he says, there were explorers and surveyors like Rennell, Buchanan and Mackenzie interested in objective reporting and plotting of sites. And on the other were scholars like William Jones, whose basic problem was to link the history of India to the other early centers of civilization in the light of the biblical theory of creation. This latter perspective, identified with the Asiatic Society of Bengal, seems to have become dominant, although it was stripped of its theological garb and took on a more thoroughly scholarly appearance as it came to be pursued in light of archaeological and numismatic <coughs> discoveries particularly in the northwest of the subcontinent. Here, Buddhist stupas and hordes of Indo-Greek coins were found. The former were often opened with the expectation of obtaining the latter, uh, which it didn't happen, actually. The appeal still lay in a connection with the West. James Princep, who had become secretary of the Asiatic Society of Bengal in 1832, observed a few years later that, 
As long as the study of Indian antiquities confines itself to the illustration of Indian history, it possesses little attraction for the general student, who is apt to regard the labor expended on the disentanglement of perplexing and contradictory mazes of fiction as leading only to the substitution of vague and dry probabilities for poetical, albeit extravagant, fable. But the moment any name or event turns up in the course of such speculations, offering a plausible point of connection between the legends of India and the rational histories of Greece and Rome, a collision between the fortunes of an Eastern and a Western hero, forthwith a speedy and spreading interest is excited. Such was the case, says Princept, with the uh, identification by Sir William Jones of the figure of Sandra Kotos appearing in Greek histories with the Mauryan king Chandragupta, sorry, Chandragupta and the great interest among Europeans in Sanskrit, which arose only when it was discovered to be related to European classical languages. Oddly, Princep goes on to say that research into the Buddhist chronicles of Ceylon had similarly excited great curiosity with respect to the light thereby shed upon the history and architecture of India, as though Buddhism was also somehow a part of uh, Europe's classical heritage. For whatever reason, Indian Buddhism did become a source of considerable interest among European scholars with the decipherment of the Brahmi and Karoshti scripts, the translation of the Ashokan edicts, and the ongoing explorations of the cave temples and other monuments of Western India. Such absorption in the significance of Buddhism steadily grew so that by the second half of the 19th century, the notion was widespread that Buddhism had at one time been more or less the state religion of India, and that the history of art and architecture in India had begun with a Buddhist phase. And there was as well great popular interest in Britain in the figure of the Buddha and his teachings. John Wilson's review in 1855 of the state of research in Western India reveals a great deal of interest in Jain and Buddhist antiquities and inscriptions. In fact, inscriptions are only mentioned in connection with Jains and Buddhists, while the study of Hinduism is confined to the examination of what is called Hindu literature. Meanwhile, also in the mid-19th century, translations of the tales of travel to India by Chinese Buddhist pilgrims had become available, and Alexander Cunningham came to be inspired by the idea that it would be possible to reconstruct the early history of Buddhism in India on the basis of material remains. Guided by the Chinese pilgrims' travel accounts, Cunningham and the Archaeological Survey of India under his stewardship focused their activities on the identification and documentation of Buddhist sites, which, as it happened, were not particularly rich in inscriptional materials. Meanwhile, in the South, in 1878, we hear the following from A.C. Burnell. The Vedic literature will always remain the most attractive object of study in relation to India, but there is much besides to be studied. The history of Indian civilization does not cease, as some appear to think, with the early period of Buddhism. Burnell was active in collecting and publishing the results of research into the paleography of South Indian inscriptions that had gone on in the first half of the 19th century, and urged that this knowledge be applied to the further gathering and deciphering of inscriptions as a mean to construct what he called a real history of South India. While historians of Indian epigraphy have made much of James Princep's decipherment of the Brahmi and Karoshti scripts in the 1830s, the similar and simultaneous labors in South India have seemed to be of less moment. Yet it was not immediately obvious how to decipher the archaic characters of the old Tamil script or of the old Kannada script. 
Benjamin Babingham succeeded in reading the former in 1830 in the Pallava inscriptions of Mamalapuram, and Sir Walter Elliot deciphered the latter, the Canada script, in about 1835. It is very possible, however, that Mackenzie's assistants had actually anticipated these early European efforts, at least with respect to the old Canada script. In Kavali Venkata Ramaswamy's biographical sketches of Deccan poets, his portrait of his brother Borea, an assistant for whom Mackenzie had the greatest affection and admiration, includes the claim that Borea had deciphered the old Canada characters. Several of Mackenzie's Jane assistants seem also to have had the ability to decipher this script. And Eliot, in his decipherment efforts, seems to have been greatly indebted to a gomashta or village clerk. Many of the inscriptions found in the Deccan in Western India were provided with dates, which were, of course, of immense use in the construction of political history. But in the southeast of peninsular in India, in the Tamil country, such dates were rarely found, and consequently interest in the inscriptions from this region was quite subdued, surprising as this seems to us today. As H. H. Wilson puts, put it in the introduction to his 1828 catalogue of the Mackenzie collection, the inscriptions of the Chola princes in the Dravida country in language are exceedingly numerous. Every temple abounds with them. Unfortunately, however, the old Tamil inscriptions very rarely present any other date than that of the year of the rain in which the circumstances they record took place. They are consequently of little chronological value. I love this dissing of Chola inscriptions. It's great. <laughs> the early work of the epigraphy office established in South India in 1886 with Eugene Hulch at its head began with the examination of displaced inscriptions, that is, copper plates and museum holdings, as well as the inscriptions on the walls of temples of apparent historical significance, like those at Tanjavur, Mamalapuram, and Kanchipuram. But increasingly, the overriding concern was to make a comprehensive survey and collection of stone inscriptions on the walls of South Indian temples, and particularly those in the Tamil country. The number of such inscriptions that were copied each year from 1887 through 1891, as recorded in the ARE, the Annual Report of Epigraphy, rarely exceeded 100. But in 1892, 352 inscriptions were collected, and, eight, and in 1893, over 600. This sharp rise was doubtless due in part to the increasing size of the epigraphy office, since in addition to Holch and his chief assistant V. Vankaya, two more assistants had joined the establishment. But it also coincides with the first mention in the ARE for 1893 of a challenge faced by the epigraphists that was to become an obsession in coming years, the threat of the demolition of temple structures as a preliminary to their renovation or building, and the resulting loss of stone inscriptions. In 1893, the temple in question was Ekambranatha Swami in Kanchipuram, where the trustees proposed to rebuild the central shrine and the first enclosing wall. As we learn in the ARE for 1902, nine years later, the recommendation that the inscribed stones at Ekambranatha be removed and safeguarded through the offices of the Public Works Department was not carried out, with the result that the inscriptions had vanished in the course of the rebuilding. Perhaps not coincidentally, in this same year, 1902, there was another spike in the number of inscriptions collected during the year. Furthest anxious warnings and rants appeared in the AREs for 1905, 1906, 1908, 1909, 1912, 1913, and so on, and frequently identified, the, uh, um, frequently identified as the main culprits, that is, the sponsors of renovations, the wealthy Natukotai Chetiar community. 
These AREs also provide evidence of frantic collecting activity with the number of inscriptions copied yearly averaging above 600. By 1913, the number of transcripts at the epigraphy office was approximately 10,000, and only a tiny fraction of these had been published. After the first three volumes of South Indian inscriptions, the editors gave up the project of translating the inscriptions and began to publish just the bare text of inscriptions in the order in which they had been collected. So, for example, South Indian Inscriptions, Volume 4, contains inscriptions copied in the years 1888 through 1893. This new format, however, seems still to have been inadequate. As Nilakanta Shastri, writing in 1934, remarked rather ruefully, the accumulation of thousands of impressions in the epigraphist's office have little chance, as things stand, of being published in any reasonable period. Almost 75 years later, we have advanced very little, though thematic volumes uh, in the South Indian inscriptions series have included inscriptions collected into the early 1960s, only the inscriptions collected up to 1910 have found their way into print in the year-by-year -year volumes of South Indian inscriptions. The first publications of translations of Indian inscriptions, Sanskrit inscriptions of course, by Charles Wilkins, William Jones, and Henry Colebrook appeared in the late 18th and early 19th centuries in the pages of Asiatic Researches, the journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal. Although Colebrook in particular had a keen appreciation for the importance of what he called all genuine monuments and especially inscriptions on stone and metal which are occasionally discovered through various accidents, that they would be able to provide a foundation for political history was, as he said, an expectation which I neither entertain nor wish to excite. He felt that the inscriptions would be of considerable use for a cultural and intellectual history of India, but that the historian must still turn to the remains of Indian literature for information about the dynasties of princes, the events of war, or the effects of policy during a series of ages. Gradually, however, the hopes of the early Orientalists that a history of India could be extracted from Puranic texts or local traditions gave way to disenchantment with what were seen as these texts' fantastic and wildly contradictory accounts of the past, and the inscriptions came to be central to the project of fixing dates and constructing chronologies. Alexander Cunningham, who was to become the first director of the Archaeological Survey of India, declared in 1848 that the discovery and publication of all the existing remains of architecture and sculpture, which I suppose he thought they all could be published, with coins and inscriptions, would throw more light on the ancient history of India, both public and domestic, than the printing of all the rubbish contained in the 18 Puranas. By the mid-19th century, therefore, Colebrook's assessment of the value of inscriptions, inscriptional evidence on the one hand versus Indian literature on the other had been turned on its head. Henceforth, the former, the inscriptional record, was to be mined with a view to constructing India's political history, while the latter, literature, would be regarded as the most authentic testimony to the history of philosophy and religion in India. Nineteenth-century epigraphists, like textual scholars, were overcome by the allure of the ancient. As we've already seen, Jones had identified the rulers of the Mauryan dynasty with kings who found mention in classical Western sources. Imagine the excitement when the pillar inscriptions in an archaic script, Brahmi, turned out to be edicts from the Mauryan king Ashoka, when the Ashokan edicts references to Buddhism could be linked to Buddhist legends of this king, 
and when the archaic script of the Ashokan inscriptions was identified as a near relative of that found on Indo-Greek coins and on ancient Buddhist monuments of the Northwest and the Western cave temples. 19th century epigraphists also focused much attention on copper plate inscriptions. These were portable, like coins, which also excited great interest, and it was easier to take impressions from them than from stone inscriptions. More often than stone inscriptions, they were royal grants and were prefaced by a poem in praise of the king and an extended genealogy of his predecessors, a prashasti, usually in Sanskrit. They were thus regarded as important sources for the construction of dynastic chronologies and political histories. In fact, in the far south, there were surprisingly few copper, pla copper plate grants and few Sanskrit prashastis for the Pallava, Pandya, and Chola kings, the stone inscriptions being entire, almost entirely in Tamil. Indeed, although Sheldon Pollock explicitly includes Tamil Nadu and the Chola capital in his description of the Sanskrit cosmopolis of about the year 1000, it seems not to be the case that the medieval Tamil country participated in such a cosmopolis if it is characterized in Pollock's words by stately public poems in Sanskrit engraved on the ubiquitous copper plates recording gifts and donations or on stone pillars looming up from gigantic architectural wonders. The relatively rare copper plate grant, the precious edicts testifying to Ashoka's rule, the records engaged, uh, engraved in ancient cave temples, these were the choice inscriptions. The early publication of inscriptions through much of the 19th century focused on such unique specimens and virtually ignored the massive inscriptions on the walls of temples, many of which were in Tamil, that truly were ubiquitous. Publication also involved, and still involves, the abstraction of the text of inscriptions from their physical being as parts of monuments, not only stripping the inscription of a context that would be useful for its interpretation, but effacing the look and feel of the inscription. The script is different, and white paper substitutes for the texture and color of the stone or the weight and cool touch of copper. Inscriptions were published and read as if they were texts, singular documents whose conditions of production or material character were of little significance. But, on the other hand, inscriptions were not texts like literary texts, and they were not appreciated as such. Nor were they really taken seriously as historical texts. The prashastis, in particular, were treated with mistrust. Although the prashastis were frequently regarded as the historical part of the inscription, the documentation of economic transactions, social arrangements, and religious activities being evidently of small account as history. And in fact, the prashasti served as the very foundation for the dynastic histories that were being built up. They were disparaged for their unhistorical attributes, so-called, their fabrication of genealogies, their exaggeration of royal achievements, and their poetic embellishments. Indian inscriptions were not themselves historical documents, but were viewed instead as sources for European historians to use in the construction of a history for India. But what about the Indian contribution to the construction of this history? Fleet, as government epi epigraphist in 1883, claimed that he was unable to find suitable native assistants possessed of proper training and of what he called a habit of criticism appropriate to the work of epigraphy, or at least he couldn't find assistants who were willing to accept the low salary on offer. In 1887, a special subcommittee set up by the colonial government to inquire into the future work of the Archaeological Survey of India heard the testimony of Holch, the first head of the office of the government epigraphist, which had just been established, expressing doubt about whether his new assistant, Mr. Venkaya, would make a good epigraphist. 
Providing a rather different perspective was Pandit S. M. Natesha Shastri, who had been employed by the Archaeological Survey of India since 1881. He said, for real useful practical work, an epigraphist should, I think, be sought for on the banks of the Kaveri or the Krishna rather than the Danube, doubtless a reference to the German origin of Holch himself. But by 1890, when Holch produced the first volume of South Indian inscriptions, he had gained a good deal of confidence in Vankaya, whom he described as his able and efficient helpmate who promises to do excellent work in the field of South Indian epigraphy. When Holch went on furlough in 1899, Venkaya was deputed as head of the epigraphy office and drew up the annual reports for 1899 and for 1900. These reports had an entirely different form than those pre previously produced by Holch, which had summarized the year's epi epigraphical findings by locale. Venkaya had instead classified the inscriptions found in the course of the year by dynasty and analyzed them with respect to their contributions to the construction of a more general political history. Holch's reports for 1901 through 1903, following his return, reverted to the earlier format. But when Holch left India for good and Venkaya became the officiating government epigraphist, the dynastic classification and analysis became permanently entrenched as a feature of the annual report on epigraphy. Venkaya was appointed to the position of epigraphist to the government of India in 1909 and was succeeded after his death in 1913 by H. Krishna Shastri. And then the entire uh, uh, work of epigraphy goes into um, uh, Indian hands. According to Richard Solomon, the study of inscriptions was totally absent from the traditional curriculum of Sanskrit learning, so that the field of Indian epigraphy was born only with the beginning of European Indology in the late 18th century. The premise of Solomon's statement may indeed be true, but his conclusion is not. There is a growing scholarly appreciation of the fact that a particular form of expertise, skills in writing, reading, sorry, skills in writing, recording, interpreting, and transmitting history had its roots not in the traditional curriculum of Sanskrit learning, but in the traditions of the so-called village accountant. Certain families, many of them Brahmin, cultivated this expertise, which was learned by apprenticeship with a near relative and might well involve knowledge of Sanskrit, and often Persian as well, but which also required the knowledge of other languages and scripts, as well as computational skills. Sometimes this training was acquired not in the village, but within the framework of a Hindu or Jain monastic establishment. Those who had such training, people often called accountants, karanams, or in Tamil, kanakupilais, had the responsibility for composing and maintaining local records such as genealogies, property transactions, and, trans and tax rolls, and their activities gave rise in the 16th century to new forms of writing in prose that Narana Rao, Shulman, and Subramanyam have, turned, have termed Karanam historiography. The new visibility of the Karanams in South India seems to be tied to the expansion of a network of business and trade centering on Madras, the consolidation of Hindu sectarian lineages and institutions, and the requirements of various uh, so-called little kings and zamindars who established themselves in the South. For example, Philip Wagner's research has shown that one of Mackenzie's assistants was a Niyogi Brahmin, Narayan Rao, who had been employed in the administration of the Nawab of Arcot, um, and was proficient in, as Phil says, to die for, Telugu, Marathi, Kannada, Tamil, Sanskrit, Hindustani, Persian, and English. Languages that would have been variously used for written correspondence, keeping records of accounts, and local communication in and around Madras. 
And most importantly from our point of view, the Kanakupilais and the Niyogi Brahmins were familiar with and valued the evidence of copper plate and stone inscriptions. They had skills in making out and identifying various scripts, i.e. paleography, and they were interested in the contents of such records as legal documents, contracts, and records of property transactions, and as providing genealogical information. We've already seen how heavily Western epigraphists relied upon Indian assistance in the decipherment of inscriptions. One special category of such assistance emerged from the Jain traditions of monastic training and manuscriptology. While in Karnataka, Mackenzie was delighted to make the acquaintance of a, an intelligent old man, a Jain physician named Durmaya, who could not only decipher and translate inscriptions in the old Canada script, but who had an extensive knowledge of the opinion and letters of the Jain. This person Mackenzie employed as an assistant to help with the transcription and translation of inscriptions. Another of Mackenzie's Jain assistants, Sri Verma Suri, uh, was familiar with the box-headed script, so-called, used in early medieval inscriptions of central India, which was, according to H. H. Wilson, unknown to the Brahmins where the inscriptions were found and equally unintelligible to the pundits of Calcutta. And James Todd, in his travels through Rajasthan, Western and Central India depended greatly upon his Jain inscription, uh, sorry, his Jain assistant, whom he referred to as my own learned friend and guru, Yati Jnana Chandra. And, uh, and Jnana Chandra also was very, um, was absolutely central to Todd's efforts to uh, decipher inscriptions. The products of Karanam historiography are everywhere in evidence among the so-called local tracts, often referred to by the Persian term kaifiyat, that make up a substantial portion of the vast number of manuscripts that Mackenzie and his team collected. These kaifiyats indicate that village accountants regularly referred to local inscriptions as one among several types of sources of local history, incorporating these into the records that were to be safeguarded and transmitted. That Karanam history was not only local history is indicated by the fact that Buchanan, in his account of his travels through South India, noted down a list of Chola Rajas procured from a village accountant. And Mackenzie's assistants also found such material, for example, a history of Chola kings from the account belonging to Tana Pila, the late Stala Karanam, temple accountant, of Kundatur obtained in 1807, in which it appears that some of the dates mentioned had been derived from the inscriptional sources. Among other materials in the Mackenzie Manuscript Collection which make reference to the use of inscriptions to create or transmit history by accountants and others, I'll just mention three examples. I think there are a lot more. I've just scratched the surface here. First, an account of the Zamindar of Amaya Nayak Paliyam. It is stated to be copied from records written on copper and carefully preserved by the family. Second, the Stala Purana of the Subramanya Temple in Udiyur written by the head Brahmin of the place who gives the information that the contents had originally been engraved on copper plates that were lost during times of disturbance. There's lots of disturbing times that are referred to um, in connection with copper plates. Third, the Chola Purva Patayam, which tells the story of the three southern kings, the Chola, the Chera, and the Pandya. In the account of the peregrinations of these kings and their conquest of the south, overpowering the cruel Jain rulers, they regularly come across, the kings regularly come across inscriptions and copperplate grants, which provide them with information about long forgotten kings and sacred places, secret passageways, and the former division among castes, which naturally they restore. 
In other historical documents which were composed earlier than many of the Kaifiats and chronicles found in the Mackenzie Manuscript Collection, there is also evidence of the awareness of the value of inscriptions as a source for history. Mark Wiltz, in his Historical Sketches of, South, of the South of India, published in 1810, refers to the composition of the Mysore Arasu Purva Budhyaya in about 1712 at the behest of the ruler of Mysore, who had directed that a collection of all historical materials in his kingdom be made, including inscriptions. The resulting composition and its Persian, Persian translation eventually made their way into the Mackenzie collection. The Temple Chronicle of Sri Rangam, Koil Orugu, compiled between the 14th and the 18th centuries, contains material that indicates that its redactors were referring to the inscriptions on the temple walls. Two 13th century inscriptions list various groups of temple servants whose representatives made up the managing committee of the temple. And uh, these inscriptions use terms for temple servants that are not found in earlier inscriptions of the temple. The redactors of Koil Olagu were clearly consulting these epigraphical records when they constructed their account of Ramanuja's reorganization of the temple personnel, since the terms in this account for categories of servants include these very unusual ones that were engraved on the temple walls in the 13th century. The compilers of Koil Olagu do not provide a, a footnote, so to speak, for the sources they were drawing on, and they, indeed they use the epigraphical evidence anachronistically and for their own purposes. Um, to provide a charter for the rights and privileges of temple servants in their own time. But we do find at least one case from outside of South India where a pre-colonial text explicitly acknowledges its indebtedness to inscriptional sources. This is Raja Tarangani, arguably the most famous, some would say the only, Indian historical text, the 12th century history of the kings of Kashmir. Its author, Kalana, tells us in his introduction how he has gone about composing his text. By a scrutiny of the ordinances, shasana, of former kings regarding religious foundations and grants, laudatory inscriptions, prashasti, as well as written records, shastra, all wearisome errors have been set at rest. Among inscriptions themselves, there is a pronounced element of intertextuality. In one of the more obvious cases, from the northwest of India, we find the author of the Kambal God inscription of 1450, claiming to have examined numerous old inscriptions in order to construct the genealogy of the kings of Mewar. Sheldon Pollock has uncovered a remarkable case of the appropriation of a prashasti and a pedigree by a king of the dynasty of the Chalyukyas of Kalyana from inscriptional sources produced centuries earlier by the unrelated Chalyukyas of, of Badami. As Pollock explains, just before the commencement of his reign in uh, 1008, Vikram, Vikramaditya V must have had Badami Chalyukya documents, especially copper plates, from 300 years earlier collected and analyzed, along with more recent records. It is clear that to do this he employed historians, what else to call a person who examines ancient documents with the intention of determining the truth or a truth of the past, having acquired the necessary philological and paleographic skills to do so. Moving to the inscriptions that I know best, the Tamil inscriptions of the 9th century onwards, there are a variety of ways in which these records refer to one another, to other documents, and to themselves. The most basic manifestation of this is found in the statement that the inscription is a copy of an earlier one that was destroyed when the temple was rebuilt, and such um, uh, recopying activity seems to have especially gone on during the Chola period. Of course, this practice uh, naturally occasioned wistful thoughts on the part of the early 20th century epigraphists, 
who said, if only the Natakota Chetiars did the same in carrying out their extensive repairs. Of course, when such latter-day re-engraving did take place, for example at Tirupati, where Chola period inscriptions had been recopied on the occasion of the rebuilding of a temple in what the epigraphist described as a modern and very faulty character, no one was satisfied either. Such recopying of medieval inscriptions is done even today, as I saw this summer in uh, Elevanasur in South Arka district, and perhaps increasingly so, as the local appreciation of the value of inscriptions seems to have risen in recent decades. But in the golden age of Tamil inscriptions, the Chola period, this was not invariably the practice any more than it was in 1900. And it seems clear that the medieval counterparts of the Natakotai Chetiars were far more interested in erecting a beautiful new temple than in preserving something that belonged to the old one. And when recopying did take place, it was not necessarily a straightforward affair. K.V. Ramesh, in his Indian epigraphy, discusses some examples of the recopying of inscriptions in which the transliteration of an older script into one in more current usage begins to border on translation. And according to K.G. Krishnan, inscriptions that claim to be copies of earlier records appear frequently to be somewhat unfaithful to the original and are often abridgments of the older inscriptions. In medieval Tamil inscriptions, over and over, as we come to the end of an order issued by a local assembly, temple authorities, or royal officers, we see the phrase, and it is to be inscribed in stone. It is interesting that such a so-called, well, hard copy of what was probably in the first place a palm leaf record should be mandated as the final step in the conveyance of an official decree. The self-referential character of the stone inscription strikes one especially in the case when we find the directive that the record is to be engraved on the walls of a specific temple. And in one case, at Tiruvirai Marudur, near Tanjavur, the text of the inscription on the temple wall indicates where its sequel to be is found, continued on the wall under <laughs> beneath the image of Dakshinamurti and in two other places on the, in the same temple. We encounter a type of epigraphical cross-referencing when a record declares that arrangements are to be carried out in the manner done according to the stone inscriptions, or according to the old stone inscriptions of the village. At times, we even find references in inscriptions at one site to inscriptional records in a different locality altogether. Two 16th century records from the a village of Tiruvandar Koyal, uh, near Pondicherry, cite the terms outlined in the stone inscriptions of another place called uh, Selyangadnolur as being applicable also to the arrangements here. In one of these two records, it seems to be the imprecation, as it is said according to the stone inscriptions in Selyangadnolur, that is invoked for those who fail to observe the terms of the agreement recorded at Tiruvandar Koyal. Perhaps his imprecation was a particularly lengthy and impressive passage describing all the terrible things that would happen to you if you didn't observe the terms of the grant. And it was omitted at Tiruvandar Coil in the interest of conserving space or saving money on the engraving. In her recent and fascinating work on scribal culture in early 19th, South, uh, early 19th century South India, Bhavani Raman has emphasized the role of memory, recitation, and computational skill in the work of the Kanaku Pillai, the uh, village accountant. She gives an example of the reading aloud of summaries of records concerning the amounts of grain stored in a company warehouse in 1814, in which the reciter, as he read off the numbers, made a quick calculation and uncovered a fraud. This evokes in a striking way the work of the composer of a Tamil inscription of many centuries earlier. The record produced by such a person in medieval times, engraved on the walls of the temple, frequently conveys the sense of being a copy, 
somewhat modified perhaps, of a written or oral account, and its formulaic and repetitive recitation of quantities of agricultural yield and precision of land boundaries seems to provide a method of internal authentication. At one time, I thought this, this, uh, this repetition on temple walls, this is a very solipsistic way of understanding this. They were anticipating that the, that the stone inscription would be broken in various places and a later reader would have to piece it together. And so having the repetitions would be very useful. But this is a much better explanation, I think, that there's, there's actually, you know, a, 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 a you know, this much p patty uh, once a day that equals this much, so there, there's that um, way of checking what's going on. The temple or village Kanaku or Karanam, and the terms appear in medieval inscriptions, uh, serve as signatory to agreements in medieval times, and uh, also are often identified explicitly as the author of the documents. Sometimes the document that's engraved on the temple wall is even called a kanakupati, a, a accountant's uh, uh, record. And also, um, the, the, the kanaku, the, uh, the accountant, is, uh, is said to be the one responsible for having it engraved in stone on the temple walls. Although the phrasing of the inscriptions emphasizes the medieval accountant's functions of writing and recording rather than remembering and reciting, the type of record he, is rec he has created and that is preserved in the inscriptions clearly resonates with the forms of oral accounting that Raman has described for the 19th century kanaku. And we might also consider the emerging evidence, I think it's emerging, uh, that the accountant of both the 13th century and the 19th century were not only remembering, reciting, and recording, but were also referring to earlier documents, including those engraved in copper or stone. So it may be time to again revisit the question of how and what South Indian inscriptions mean and how these meanings have been invested in them. It might be of value not only to acknowledge the status of the inscriptions as historical documents in their own right, but to begin to appreciate the interaction and continuity they may have with other historical productions and practices in India, old and new. Thank you. <laughs>